next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. Yes, I'm very much involved in actually building this business. But guess what? The person who brought millions of dollars had to sweat to end the millions of dollars and he's brought it to the table. So why should you own the lion's share and what does he get for the millions of dollars that he's bringing to the table? I'm not convinced that the fact that you and I have been friends before means that when we found a company together, it will work together. I think the things that make a company work together very well are a lot of professionalism, a lot of understanding what each person's role is in the business. And also the exit conditions. And, and a it, bit of luck. And it, yes. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h-dot-c-o. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. My guest today is Rafael Afaedo. Rafael is one of the founders that I'm actually fascinated by because of his role in building and being part of the startup ecosystem in Nigeria right from a long while, uh, from the beginning of um, a rocket internet, Jumia, and what he's doing now. Rafael is someone I would call a Pan-African. He's Ghanaian originally, building a business in Nigeria. And I'm going to explore his view and his passion about the country and uh, what he's doing and what he believes is going to be happening in Nigeria in the future. Uh, I'm also obviously going to ask him about the difference between Nigerian jollof rice and Ghanaian jollof rice. But Rafael uh, is someone I respect a lot. He's been to a couple of our events and, and, and he has a good view about the startup ecosystem and he has a strong thesis about the business he's building. So Rafael, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you for having me, Dalton. So, Raphael, let's start from the beginning. You went to Harvard Business School. 
Yes, I did. Normally, you have a business school graduate. We want to work in investment bank or PE firms or consulting. Why did you decide to start a business afterwards? Or did you work? Did you have a stint in the PE firms and consulting before you joined the Rocket Internet? In no. Um, uh, so I went to business school um, uh, knowing that I wanted to be a Pan-African entrepreneur. Um, so it wasn't so much, I didn't consider those options. I just wanted to be a Pan-African entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, there are some skills that I need. I need to be able to raise funds. Um, so I tried to take an internship that will enable me learn the skills. I need to be able to do operational stuff, to be able to be out there building the business, managing people, acquiring customers, holding on to those customers, etc. So the basics that a business needs to do is the kind of stuff that I spent my time trying to learn when I did corporate. And after that, I just went out to start building businesses. When you say you did corporate, was that your internship in Harvard or when you left Harvard, you worked a bit in corporate? Yes, I did. After my undergraduate, I'm a graduate of computer science. Where? Which and, university? Uh, the Czech Technical University. So by academic background, I attended the Czech Technical University where I have a master's in computer science. In Czech Republic. Yes. Then I did a master's in marketing in uh, Switzerland. And then after that, I went to business school. And before that, I actually worked in uh, Monster.com, managing the dev team, and then later on uh, rising to become a product manager in charge of 18 European countries before going to business school. And went to business school. And after that, I came to Nigeria, where I work at Notori, um, in charge of business development, sales, and marketing. What's Notori doing? Notori is uh, the largest manufacturer of urea fertilizer in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. They produce in Port Harcourt. They use the gas to produce fertilizer in Port Harcourt. So I was in charge of commercializing it for marketing in Nigeria, and then business development and sales in uh, North, West, and Central Africa. So when you left the business school, you had a, a strong conviction about that you want to start your business. You want to uh, be a Pan-African entrepreneur. So did you eliminate Ghana as a place to go to because it just looked like natural for MBA go to Ghana and then you can be top 5%, um, maybe a manager or an entrepreneur. But you didn't do that. B, what solidified your thinking around A, starting your business, B, being a Pan-African entrepreneur, and C, the opportunities that exist in the continent? Because, and I particularly has that third question, because you have the option of working in Europe. Um, so, I mean, Ghana... Not that I didn't consider it. Ghana remains home. Uh, my family lives there. So obviously, um, and I go there quite often, but Nigeria has the bigger markets and you simply cannot build a business when there is no market. So Lagos is godsend for me, so far as I'm concerned, because you have 20 something million people in one addressable location. You can drive from one end of Lagos to the other, maybe once or twice a day. You can drive from one end of the island to the other, you know, many times a day. I mean, and that's about easily five, six million people on the island, probably. So, so this is where the market is. And so if you're going to build out a business and test out a thesis, it pays to actually test it out in this big market where you hope that you get some customers who have the ability to pay to be able to get your business to become break even. And then you now have a business which you can now expand across the subcontinent. So that's one of the reasons why I chose Nigeria. Um, it has its advantages, which is what I spoke about. It has its own challenges too, right? Um, so for example, you have uh, the electricity situation is as it is you know moving from one place to the other is also very difficult etc so that's those are some of the challenges of lagos but i bet more on the potential than on the challenges in terms of the other options that i had of living and working in europe um i know i decided i wanted to be building pan-african businesses so i came back home okay so we're gonna go into what you did next so you moved back uh and then nigeria was your first point of call because you got that opportunity with notori and you see that as a stepping stone or was that a learning point for you to be able to 
find out what you want to do next. And the right question to that is, how did you determine your next opportunity? Because huge from business school, you're taught several generic skills. How did you see Notoria as an opportunity to get into that place? Mm-hmm. No, I loved my time in Notoria. Um, again, like I said, I wanted to be out there at the forefront of building pan-african businesses and i think being an entrepreneur is not only about being the lead in building the business you can also be behind other entrepreneurs and build a business and i'm perfectly comfortable doing that so i did absolutely enjoy my time in notary the people are still very very good friends of mine i hang out with them literally on a weekly basis uh, even till today the only reason why i left was because i have this passion for technology and notary while it brought me into agribusiness and i love agribusiness and i call it my second love versus my time spent in Notori. I just felt I wanted to be back in technology, building technology businesses. That's the only reason why I left. But otherwise, I could perfectly have pursued my career with those people. Fantastic people. Okay. So you moved from Notori to starting with the German rocket internet company. How did that play out? They approached you or you have an idea and you talk to them? So two things happened there. One, I left Notori and, and started the first company. Those were the days where group buying was at its height. So I started a company just before deal day started. I think about You two started weeks. that company? Yes. Um, uh, you want you replicate Groupon? Yeah, more or less, yeah. I'll say the idea was Groupon. Of course, the execution has to have a lot of localization. So I wouldn't call it, I'll say the Groupon model. I wouldn't call it a replica of Groupon because you find out you actually have to do a lot of things differently. Yeah, so I started that business and ran it for a year. It was growing, but it was still very much a small business. Were you still working at Notoria at that point? No, I left and started and fully focused on it. Right. And the reason why I did that was because when I looked around me, I saw that the city looked like it was ripe for e-commerce. So I could see people with much, you know, the significant purchasing power, the cars on the streets, the things that people were wearing, the things that people were buying, etc. And I felt convinced that a lot of these actually could be taken online. And the internet was becoming more and more abundant. You know, it was just there in people's hands. You know, people were connecting via mobile phones, etc. And a lot was changing very, very quickly. It's interesting because things change so rapidly around you that sometimes you don't realize what is changing. But if you were to look back a year or two ago, the kind of connectivity that we have today is much better than two years ago. Even though when it's changing, right around you you don't notice it and so when i looked back in uh, that was 2011 and compared it to when i first came which was like late to late 2009 i noticed things were moving forward very very rapidly so i tested out that business model and i thought i got in good enough feedback so around that time i started sounding off to my friends um, business school friends etc and i knew what rocket internet was doing so i reached out to some of them they told me that rocket internet was interested and will be interested in coming to this market right so i had a conversation with them and at that point they asked if i wanted it to be nigeria or Ghana to roll out first in and I told them that I thought it was Nigeria because the market was just significantly bigger what in Nigeria. year was this? the conversation started late 2011 we rolled out in May 2012 and by that time you've already started your own um, what was the business called? the group buying business? Clue 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 so you started Clue Clue 2011 yes and you were already just testing that out yes and so, what was that testing about? so you launched the website we launched, we were out there selling, we were building a business, but it wasn't that we were out there testing a business. No, we we're building a business, but this was logistics-free, inventory-free e-commerce. Okay, how does like that work? The, so you don't have any logistics because you buy coupons online and then the coupons are delivered to you via email. And then and you then take that coupon to redeem at, at different a, places. Yeah, exactly. And even insofar as you needed to pick up products, you went there and you picked up the products directly from the retailer. But the transaction so, is done online. Transaction was done online. Hmm. So people were able to pay online, trust you that exactly. I can 
to buy coupon. Exactly, exactly. Right there and then. But of course, in 2011, there was only so big that the business could become. But the, Why? What are the limitations? Yeah, because even today, people talk about the fact that they have questions about paying online. You can imagine in 2011, it was even worse. So I can tell you, stories. I had a customer, for example, pay 150,000 naira into the bank account and called and asked, you know, to tell me that she'd actually paid the money into the bank account. I'm like, have you placed an order? She's like, what is an order? Right. So she didn't know what an order was, but she believed what she saw on the website and paid the money into the bank account. And we had other people, you know, see the product and say, look, can you deliver the product before I pay for it? Can I go to the place and pay there? You know, so you had all of these things. But the, the truth of the matter is it was clear that there was unmet demand for services provided on the Internet and we're out there providing it. And you gave me reason to believe that we could actually scale this. So towards the end of 2011, we started this early 2011. So towards the end of 2011, it was clear that if we got real partners who had a real capacity, we could actually build a real business. So that's when I started reaching out to my network. And uh, I think it was more a meeting of opportunity and preparedness because right about that time, I don't know if my reaching out is what started the conversation within the organization or they were already at the point where they will be willing to go into the market and then they found me and it was like, perfect, we have this guy, right? So that was it. Now from there, it took a while, a little bit to actually get it off the ground and the other players were brought into the mix and then we started the business. So what happened then? So after the clue was going on and then you reach out to Rocket and you had this deal with Rocket. So okay, we're going to come into the market because we think it's ripe. You validate a few stuff and we're also thinking about this market. Okay, so that deal was done. So what happens afterwards? Two things. Is it that they changed the business model to e-commerce? Because uh, I'm trying to dig into the beginning of Jumia and, mm-hmm. and what we see it to be today. Uh-huh. And was it that? And then it looked like from some bits and pieces that I were able to catch up or what in the internet to piece all the pieces together was there was another player as well who was doing something similar or something different they mm-hmm. were able to come together to become the I don't know what the name was before it became Jumia so what was the key thing can you talk me through that the process and the story behind all of that and how it became Jumia as we know it today no so it was very simple again the rocket mo- internet modus operandi is they bring a lot of capital into the mix so they're significant owners of the business and you need a lot of capital which is also the reason why they're successful because they're able to raise significant volumes of capital and uh, yes so before then there were other players who had started some degree of e-commerce but nothing at scale i would say even clue clue was one such we just happened to be doing you know zero logistics zero inventory kind of was there a deal fish or something like that at that point or there were were players like deal fish mortality that had tried before then Uh, so at this point in 2000 so maybe deal fish mortality will probably be around 2010-2009 i think it was kalahari also maybe a bit earlier. So 2009, 2010, there was some activity, but that had nothing to do with what we were doing. Um, so my thing was me personally, I was doing um, the Clue uh, Clue, which is what I mentioned before. Then I got in touch with the Rocket Internet people and then we rolled out Jumia. But we rolled out Kasua, uh, which was like um, a general merchandise company. And then they rolled out Sabunta and then later on we merged Kasua and Sabunta. Interesting names actually. So what was Kasua? Was that doing different from yours? And what was Sabunta? Yes. Uh, who we'll come up with this? First of all, who we'll come up with these names? <laughs> we just had to come up with names to get started. Okay. That's why we chose because it's kind of like market in a Hausa language. Right. So these were both rocket internet funded companies. Right. Okay. So, so your company merged into that? No. My former company. So I had an offer to sell it, but selling it also came to with Jumia? Business. 
No, to someone else. Yeah, yeah. Selling it also came with some degree of responsibility that I didn't feel like I wanted to take. So we decided to wind it down. So that's exactly what we did. We wound it down to focus on starting Jumian. Oh, so it wasn't that Jumian came and took over no. your company. No, no, it's no. okay. You are doing something great. We want you. Exactly. Wind down what you're doing and then come and help us. What? It wasn't a condition, yeah. but I thought it was the, the right way to right. go. So progression was that. Okay, you had to wind that down and start something new. Mm-hmm. And not that group buying anymore. So you started general merchandise, e-commerce, yes. Kazuwa, is it? Yes, Kazuwa. How did Tunde Kende came into the picture? Was he mm-hmm. doing something different as well? Tunde Kende was in the US at the time, but he had also expressed interest in doing something like this. So again, the Rocket Internet modus operandi is we're looking for entrepreneurial types and people who want to build. We have the capital, so we want to build a team. So it's no different from you as um, a founder of a company saying maybe I am a tech co-founder and I'm looking for a business partner. And so you send it off to your network and then you start looking for people who will be interested in going you know, into the trenches with you to build a company. And it's pretty much the same thing. Rocket Internet, in a sense, is the investor. It's looking for founders who want to be out there building companies. And they will come in and say, look, yeah, sometimes it is the founder who comes and looks for the investor or a founder who looks for a founding team and then goes to look for an investor. We flip that model on its head. We are an investor looking for a founding team, you know, and we'll help you put that team together. So what makes a team? It's just people coming together to work together. The friendship that precedes the founding team is not as necessary or as important as we make it seem more or common thinking makes it seem like well, we're yeah, trying to predict that. the fact that two or three people can work together well into their future and because, of what, because of what they've done in the past right but, you, but it can be an indication right that they can go through thick and thin together because there's something that brings them together beyond the business so especially when the business is going through a hard time there is a I, friendship and there is common values in my experience i don't know if that is a good enough indicator of success or not. My my sincere belief is that if you look back, you may find out that founding teams that know each other well before versus founding teams that don't know each other very well before, there won't be that much of a difference statistically in their ability to work together. I'm not convinced that the fact that you and I have been friends before means that when we found a company together, it will work together. I think the things that make a company work together very well are a lot of professionalism, a lot of understanding what each person's role is in the business, the individuals and where they are in terms of their lives. So if a person's economics don't work and the person starts a family, etc., maybe it's not going to work. Whether you friends before or you just met it doesn't really matter at that point if the person is a cantankerous individual and uh, you were friends before you maybe you know that maybe they have been cantankerous will not be obvious to you because you were friends and you were going through jolly good times together all the while but now you started a business together all of a sudden things get tough and you start discovering parts of their personality that you didn't know so i'm just not too sure that knowing a person before i think the structure you put in place when you're starting the business structuring things letting people know what their responsibilities what are you bringing to the business what do you own etc this is what i do and these are the exit conditions etc i think those are probably more important than you know being best friends starting a business together interesting because um the reason why this is quite important conversation is like you rightly said there's been a lot of glorification of the founders and the founding team and the story and the myth behind how they come together and i think you might be right in the sense that even though it looks like it helps when people are friends before they start a business, that means it's an indication that they can work together. There will be less learning and tension that is beyond the work. But I don't think there's empirical evidence to suggest that the best founding team are the ones that have known each other before. Larry and Sergi 
brain. Uh, I don't think they were childhood friends, but they met based on the project and they founded Google. The dynamics of their relationship, I don't know. But what we know is that they built a successful company together. There are so many other founders that are like that as well. Uh, maybe Facebook is an example. They met in the uni, but maybe they are friends and stuff. No, Facebook, I would actually argue, is, it's a bad example. It's that. No, it's the example that disproves the point. Right. Because the founding team didn't stay on with Facebook. Okay. Sheryl and Mac have created way more value in Facebook together. True. And she true. was not part of the founding team. Right. People like Dustin, etc. You know, even Sean Parker fell up. That's true. That's uh, true. Away along the line, you know, so... So that, again, that actually proves your point about what is most important, uh, those key things like, what are you bringing, professionalizing uh, the values and understanding what everybody wants out of the business and also the exit conditions. And, and a it, bit of luck. And it, Yes, and that's a key thing that people underestimate a lot, that it's a bit of luck. I remember when I was raising fund for my business uh, in the UK and it was this strategy that I would advise everybody to use actually uh, and we used it even though we didn't raise money not because we of that strategy but it actually helped us a lot in many ways so what we did was this well, after I closed my initial seed round immediately after that someone in my board and said why don't you start talking to investors that you need money from in the next six months now and go to them and the pitch is this I just want to talk to you about my business because I wear based in Bristol and I love the VCs are based in London. Let's go and have a chat with them and say, hey, this is what we're doing. It's interesting. We're not looking for money now, but we just want to know what are the key things that you need to see when we want to raise money in about six or eight months time. See, that was the stuff. And one of the conversations struck me. One of the investors said, okay, you need to understand your unit economy. You need to prove it out. You need to get out to get your customers well. And you need to have a good team, blah, blah. And he said, and a bit of luck the X factor that nobody knows. And if a lot of people don't, they underestimate that, that. Some business became successful above the others, not because they are executed the other ones, but they are just lucky. So let's go back to the story that you were talking about. So Tunek was involved with Jim, got involved with Jim right from Harvard, and then he came, and was he brought in to start the other one that matched with you? You were heading Kazuwa, mm-hmm. and he was doing which one? No, so Tunek came straight to Kazuwa. Kazuwa was me on day one. Agbolohan Fagbure, actually, same day. Okay, me before me they negative something and then but they won um, and myself and then what do you mean negative something negative something is when the conversation started Day okay, okay. That's where we actually started okay, okay. So day minus zero, minus one, minus yeah. zero. Okay, minus below seven. zero. Yeah. Okay. So um, you were you were having a conversation before the company started. Before we started, yes. Okay. And upon starting, it was myself and Balahan Fagburo, incidentally, who is actually my co-founder with Supermat. Yes, so, yeah. so they, uh, Jimmy brought in Balahan as well. Was so it from Bal- a business school or no? Balahan was contacted by the Rocket Internet team. So the way Rocket Internet works is they put a lot of resources, and it's just just money, right? So they bringing money but what they also do is they have people are recruiters who now once the decision has been made that we're going to start this thing they go out there find the lead entrepreneurs and then the process of finding the lead entrepreneurs so i'm told you know bring people if you know any good people bring them let's have a conversation with them and at the same time they are also looking for good people and so they bring the people they've spoken to this person you have a chat with this person and incidentally Bolohan and i had met once maybe a few times before actually but we had a group of friends together so i knew about him he knew about me and well, was he doing by then? He had started a company before then. And so the Rocket Internet people contacted him. So we reached out, oh, well, we are doing this together, right? So we got on board. And of course, around the same time, Tunde had also been talking about actually coming back. And so 
We spoke on the phone. We had met earlier, about two years earlier in Boston. So we spoke on the phone and he was in town within 10 days after speaking on the phone. And so that's really the way we put the founding team together. So that's the core founding team. I think most people do know myself and uh, Tunde because we carry the title of managing director and we we're more the face of the company. And Bolohan was a uh, chief operating officer who was actually out there in the trenches, you know, putting all the bolts and nuts together. So, but core founding team was this team here. And then we started building from there. But the way we were brought together was, you know, relationships and, you know, recruiters and, you know, discussing the same way where they fit. And then you match with another one. We match with the other one because this process was going on in parallel for a fashion business again, funded by Rocket Internet. And so about two months or three months later, for whatsoever reason, we decided to actually merge the two companies. So rather than buying an existing company, so Rocket Internet just said, okay, we're bringing you here. You're not bringing assets from your other business, apart from your understanding of the ecosystem and some of the relationships that you have. Talk me through the beginning, uh, because Zoom is becoming a big juggernaut now, a beast. And uh, a lot of people want to see how, how was it at the beginning to validate that business, to build the team to go to the merchant and encourage them and get them to start selling online? I think the beginning was just a lot of just getting things done, to be honest. It was interesting. It's just getting things done. We needed to build a team. We knew how much money we had at our disposal to be able to build. So was it a lot them. of money? It was a, a tidy sum of money, yes. Um, well, how much was it that you started? I can't unfortunately disclose. But so, buy into the millions. Yes. Into the millions of yeah. dollars yes. that Jimmy said, we're going to support you to this. You have an experiment to prove. Does it's that give so you a much. sense of security as a founder? Unlike other founders that just raise money and they know that if that money finishes, then they have to go out and raise money. But you have like a corporate guy backing you and say, you've got a long way to experiment this. As long as it's working, you've got more money. Yeah, so I could argue that is the same thing that every founder has, right? But the difference is that... Not the things, same. The way it's structured is the same, right? But Rocket Internet has its own modus operandi. And I keep using this word all the time because they've done this. This is not the first market they're doing this in. And they know sometimes just take time. And so they're going to have a lot more patience. And then the second thing is that they have ways of raising money to be able to fund the companies. They do all sorts. They raise money directly into the company. They raise money into the fund, which is money they use to be able to prop up companies while they're waiting to be able to raise money for that specific company, etc. They've done e-commerce. They know e-commerce around the world, probably outside America more than anybody else knows. And they understand that sometimes the business plan will take time to be executed on. And so they've thought through, and I don't know how they've thought it through very well, but I do know that insofar as the business is showing the promise that it needs to show, they will find the money for the business. If it's not showing the promise, they'll kill the business. They also know very well to kill businesses that are not really. So our job was to actually go out there and execute. Um, their job was to bring the resources to the team. And insofar as we're executing well, they'll make sure the resources are there to keep growing the business. And so from the beginning, it was just about that. We have a business plan. We have a timeline to be able to execute the business plan. Let's get to work, you know, running around and doing everything and anything, right? So it's recruiting people into the various roles. It's signing suppliers. It's finding office space. It's um, a training team. It's trying to come up with like, you know, operating procedures. It's putting the site up. It's everything, right? It was just like an organized mess. Long hours, seven o'clock to 11 o'clock in the night, 12 o'clock in the night, etc. I'm just pushing hard. I do remember the first three weeks we grew from about zero to about 30 people. So literally every day. And while doing this, we managed to get the technology put together, get the website up. We had signed supplies, got the website up, and started selling. You know what I mean? So it's just rapid, intense execution. But then having good money to be able to execute that helps a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And then what's the structure like? Your founders, you have equity in the business. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's structured. 
structure, but mm-hmm. you give you good salary as well. Mm-hmm. So that is not a lot of equity because they own a significant mm-hmm. part. So mm-hmm. how does that affect your sense of ownership? Now mm-hmm. you've been in three phases. You mm-hmm. there was a one that you're owning, you're running your own business with your money. I don't know whether you raise money for your first business. So probably maybe you are eighty or ninety percent. Okay, it was a test, and you're doing business. That was you. Then you move to this model, which is you're a founder. You have some equity or the significant decisions and strategic and whatever you make an execution but you're still like an employee and now moving to this one with supermarket.ng which is classic having an idea raising money and stuff i want to know the sense of ownership how is it the same which i assume we're not but what are the key differences in those three models mm-hmm. i think you're touching on a very very important point one way to look at it is the sense of ownership another way to look at it is contribution Right. So I think insofar as one is wed and enamored by the title of entrepreneur and thinking of himself as an entrepreneur being the savior of the world, you know, I'm a Zuckerberg, I'm a this, I'm a that, then the equity ownership becomes something that influences the sense of ownership, like you put it. But insofar as one thinks of it as, look, I'm bringing something to the table, I'm starting this from scratch to so have equity in it, and but I'm also getting a decent salary. So in a way, I'm being compensated even from the here and now. And at the same time, somebody has brought a significant amount of money to the table, um, which also means that they deserve a significant amount of ownership. Then you begin to wear the title of entrepreneur or co-founder with clarity of what you're contributing. It doesn't mean you contribute less, but it means that you've pulled way more resources together, which also increases the probability of actually building a bigger company significantly, uh, which also means that your own stake will be smaller, but that's fine, right? I mean, 100% of zero is nothing and 1% of 100 is bigger, right? So that's understanding that it's a bunch of people bringing different resources together to be able to build something significant, which also means that you're not going to be the only owner and like, you know, the savior of the world kind of like. So the percentage that you hold, the shareholders that you hold in a business is tied to a potential outcome that, okay, if I want to be 5%, this company is so for 100 million. Oh, okay, we're going to get 3 million. Okay, so, boy. I think human minds work in a different way. Even though you know that 3% of 100 million, of 100 million business is more than 50% of 100,000 business, right? But that's the way human mind works in terms of I own majority or I own significant part of this business, even though it could be zero. Do you see any reasoning in that? And does that affect how you sense how much you own in Jumia compared to how much you own in Supermart? No, that's what I'm trying to explain, right? So you have to look beyond that. That's just the sentiment. You have to look beyond, let the numbers do their talking, right? I mean, what did exactly I bring to the table? Yes, I'm very much involved in actually building this business. But guess what? The person who brought millions of dollars had to switch to end the millions of dollars and he's brought it to the table. So why should you own the lion's share and what does he get for the millions of dollars that he's bringing to the table? So I think entrepreneurs need to realize that Capital belongs to somebody, and that person had to sweat to end that cap or to get that capital. They have they had to take risk to be able to multiply that capital. So when they deploy that capital, they have to get a commensurate um, ownership to compensate for the risk they are taking. I think that if you tie the two together and you understand the full gamut of what exactly you're in, then the sentiment of you know what percentage do I own, etc., should not be what's. So you're saying that it not affect you at all. So it's the same sense of ownership that you have in Jumia that you're having in Superman. I'll say so, yes. It's the same. So let's talk about how, why you left Jumia, because it's 
massive now. Yeah. No, so I mean, again, you have to ask yourself, where do you think you can add the most value? So yes, in things like decision making, for example, having more actors also means that, you know, you're not a dictator, if you will, you know, you have to actually take, sometimes you get your decision implemented, sometimes something else is implemented. That's perfectly fine. We left Jumia really because we thought the company was big enough to be able to stand on its two feet. And we also thought that we could actually go back into the trenches to solve some other problems that the markets needed. Like what we're doing with Supermart, for example. I mean, when we're starting, our thesis was that people spend easily six hours a week to get their groceries you know from driving uh, to a shop right somewhere which is easily in lagos um 45 minutes you know parking maybe 10 15 minutes walk up and down the aisle find some stuff you know leave the parking or drive home that's three hours and then they have to do it some other place again because you don't find everything in one location so to be able to build the technology and the know-how and the systems that get people's groceries delivered smack to their homes that saves the women in our lives easily six hours a week that's almost like an extra day now if we want to build a community where we empower and these women in our lives will spend this time resting catching up on work catching up with friends etc if we want to build a real community then we should be able to empower what is easily half and even maybe the more productive active half of our society and, and so we thought we actually can go after this and it's going to be a big opportunity and i think it's proven itself as that and, and yeah we've been at it for about four years now and we've diversified we added more and more what do you uh, mean diversified we're still doing primarily the same thing but we've created more or less a platform now that other businesses are able to leverage to be able to do you know things like grocery delivery to be able to do um, retail because we've built the know-how and the skills. So now what we know, we're able to open up to other businesses. So I'll give you a good example. There's Jumia Fresh. Jumia, big as Jumia is, uh, didn't have a fresh category. And we work with Jumia together. So Jumia Fresh is actually powered by Supermat. So Jumia can focus on actually doing broad e-commerce, fashion, general merchandise, mobile phones, etc. But the competence of groceries is something that we possess that they don't need to now invest anew in. And so we do Jumia Fresh for groceries for Jumia Fresh. So that kind of stuff. We build the competence we know something now we open it up to the market so the market can also other players in the market can use our competence to be able to do business and i think it's been four years very well used good let's talk deeply about the business model then supermarket enable people to buy groceries delivered to their home it sounds to me like a logistic play like instacart so you have buyers or grocers who go to these grocery shops and buy on behalf after someone has placed an order i'm assuming you don't have a store you don't have physical inventory so you just build a logistic platform that enable people to order within hour or three hours within three hours so there are a few difficulties to that one is the pricing okay so because logistics could be expensive and so you need to be able to aggregate orders in a way that we make your logistics be efficient i used to run an on-demand food delivery platform and a growth metric at, po- at one point when we were not focusing on people buying through our website we're just playing logistics our growth metric was uh, driver efficiency uh, we call our delivery drug guys drivers so driver efficiency how many delivery can they do within an hour that's how we measure growth and how can we optimize that better so your play is a bit like so there's that and there's also the pricing because people pay on your platform so talk me through one what is the model like do you put your surcharge on top of it or you just charge service fee uh, we deliver you pay us x amount for delivery uh, so i want to know that that will help me to understand the next question i'm going to ask about what are you creating efficiency that way so also what is the business model yeah so it's very simple we're doing a few things right we're helping our suppliers sell because we're picking up from them and delivering and to think about it these guys have been in the markets um, doing groceries for years and we don't think that we're going to learn how to do groceries better than 
the people who have been doing this for much longer than what we know how to do is to tie technology and logistics and demand generation online together and demand fulfillment and you know post post delivery customer service etc that's what we know how to do so we've brought that to the table our suppliers we pick groceries from we deliver to the customer. So for the customer, we're delivering to them. They pay a delivery fee. We give the customer exactly the same price that they will find in the store. Okay, so okay. you charge only for the delivery. We charge for the delivery, but we charge our suppliers as for being a marketing channel for them. So we make right. money from our suppliers by being a marketing channel so for them. So that's a percentage. And then, yes, okay. and then our customers for being a delivery. So it looks like well, the okay. kind of business that I was running as well, which was we aggregate restaurants that normally don't deliver. And so people can go on Online to our website and they can order when they order the food we deliver we charge customers delivery fee but we also charge our partner restaurants 30 percent off what we so we position it as a marketing channel for them and convenience for our customers okay so if that is it then my question then becomes a bit more complicated because then your business is inch on two things on how quickly you can deliver which you think is going to make more money from that delivery how many delivery can your drivers do within a particular time and the volume of the order so the basket size right so and that's quite important because the basket size will determine how much you make um, how will you drive that is it that you have to educate the customers more about it or that's one on two do you have to strategically have grosses not too far from the place that you the orders are coming from. Yeah, um, I'll answer the second question first. Yeah, so we work with a hyper-local model where we're close to our grocers and we try to cut down the distance between where we are and where we're delivering to. Um, so the model is really to be closer and closer. So we're picking from a place. It should not take us too long. It should not be a long distance from... Um, uh, we should be picking local to the neighborhoods we're delivering to. That's one. The second one is driving up the basket size. In groceries, it's really the breadth of the assortment. So today we have a little over 10,000 items on the website and it's everything you can think of that you need at home. When you go to many of these bigger supermarkets and even markets, you don't find everything. So you go to your local market and you might not find some of the imported brands that people buy. And if you go to the traditional supermarkets, you won't find some of the local market items, your Shaki, your Pomo, you know, your Ewedu, etc. You won't find in the you know, traditional supermarket. What we've done is to aggregate all of these to one address. So by aggregating these, customers buy more. And what we found out is every time we add a new market, every time we add new items that are not on the site before, we're not on the site before, the basket size increases. So to get this straight, then you don't have the grocers advertised on the website. It's a closed marketplace, the way I call it, in the sense that you just list all the items rather than you can buy from this place or this place. Yeah, so customers buy from us, but right. we list the grocers we pick from, so they know where we're going to pick from. So they know we're working with this person and that person and that person, but we take full responsibility for the experience. We decide where we're going to pick Coca-Cola from, for example, but the customer knows that chances are it's going to come from this person or that person because we list them on the site. That's a good one. Then is there a place then, or a play later on, where you can be talking to the manufacturer directly and say, there were data shows that people buy Coca-Cola, blah, blah, and then you can cut a deal with Coca-Cola to get more money. And then you can tell them that you can be supplying X amount of Coca-Cola to this particular um, grocer. The grocer almost becomes like a warehouse. So they get paid through that as well. So they don't have to worry about stocking Coca-Cola store and paying up front or I don't know how the arrangement is like. But it can just be a pass-through for them and you can pick up because you know what the demand is like. Is that something that can happen or is that something that is already happening? No, it's not happening today. Um, in theory, you can always think about many, many possibilities. But I think one thing people lose sight of when 
when they think about partnerships and how partnerships evolve is the fact that everybody's actually bringing something to the table. So whenever you start thinking about eating your partner's cake, you think about the revenues and the profits that they are making, but you forget conveniently about the challenges and the costs that they have to incur to be able to get that revenue and profits. So you'll find yourself realizing very quickly that it may just make more sense to continue partnering with them than to try and do what they're doing because they've built the infrastructure and the competence and the know-how to be able to do that. And uh, the partnership works insofar as you focus on your bit and they focus on their bit. Yes, you can try and start, you know, integrating more and more into their part of the business, but it's not just all, um, you know, good stuff. It's but is also there a risk cha- with challenges. Is there know? a risk with them not stocking enough stuff? Because you have no control about how they manage their inventory. Mm-hmm. You have no control of the inventory. And also that leads to the question about the visibility. How sure am I that if I order Nivea cream from your platform, you will get it from that grocer that you listed on your platform. And even though you said that they have it, but they might not have it because they just sold the last one. Okay, so two things there. Um, Yes, every now and then you can have a spike in order volumes, but for the most part, these things are predictable. They're predictable because you know Christmas time, there will be a spike. You know the kind of things that people will buy at Valentine's time. You know, so these things are things that are pretty predictable. So it should not shock anybody. And the second thing is that our suppliers have been in the market long enough. They know these things very well. So they make sure that they stock well enough to, in preparation for these good days where there's like, you know, a spike in demand. The second thing is when a customer buys Nivea body lotion, the promise they're buying is not the promise from a particular yeah. retailer. The promise is the promise from Nivea, the company, right? So our responsibility is to bring them Nivea body lotion the way Nivea, you know, uh, produced it and meant it to be kept in transit or kept on the shelves. So as long as we're working with good retailers who make sure they hold the product, they stock the product well, the customer doesn't care what so we pick. How do from. you know? So I think the core question is not about whether the customer is knowing that you're getting from this particular shop because its price is the same. I think where I'm eating at is visibility and availability of that order. Maybe you have three or four grocers. How do you know that that Nivea is available when so you're not controlling the inventory? No, so we don't control the inventory, but we do get information from our suppliers. So they do send us data feeds on a regular basis. Some once a day some actually even uh, multiple times a day uh, so we know what's on the shop floor in terms of inventory um, and we're working w- with multiple suppliers too so we also know if one doesn't have it we can pick it from the other one etc okay good so the other question I was asked about a GMV so um, what can you give an indication of how was the GMV like now and how has it grown since you started so I can't get to the specifics of the numbers um, it's in the tens of thousands per basket that's the average basket uh, is about tens of thousands per yes, basket yes um, low tens but not in the thousands more than that and then it's grown gradually over time to be honest um, it's one metric that has constantly grown um, so we started it was much smaller and then you know like I mentioned earlier as we add new suppliers and add new products and new markets it keeps growing so our plan is to get to the point where anything you need in your home you should be able to find on Supermat and I think we're getting there increasingly so you, a good indicator of how much people are spending is what probably your wife would have spent in a week for grocery shopping that is what she will spend on Supermart. Maybe she still has to look somewhere for one or two items, but our sincere hope is that we are getting very closely to the point where she doesn't have to look anywhere else. And what is the adoption like? How are people accepting this? Because I know it's still a very foreign culture to many people to order groceries online. Even in the UK, it takes a lot of education to get there. Even the, I don't think we're there in the UK yet as well. So how is the adoption like for you? So Lagos is big and that's good. So there are different, you meet people at different points of the product adoption life cycle you have some people who 
you know live and swear by us if you go on the internet social media you see people who are writing uh, superman has saved my life superman has changed my life uh, you know i mean uh, and so if you were to talk to people in the entrepreneurial ecosystem people that you have contact with and you ask them about supermarket you'd be surprised by how many people actually use our service um, uh, but it doesn't mean that we're quite mainstream quite yet one we haven't spent the kind of money that you know the big e-commerce brands for example have spent in marketing um, so we're still not quite as known as them but the beauty of our model is that the beauty of our model is that it is sticky. So unlike when you buy maybe a mobile phone, you won't buy a mobile phone for another year or two, right? So would you still be remembering the brand when a year or two comes? Maybe not, maybe yes, but they have to spend money on branding to keep themselves like in you know, the top of mind for you. With us, you buy groceries this week. Next week, you have to buy groceries. So long as we've done a good job, you're probably going to think about us. So our job is to make sure that, you know, we, are, we do a good job. Um, like we tell the team all the time we're only as good as our last delivery so long as we keep doing a good job then customers will keep coming back and there's no perception of that you are more expensive than going to the market and go your way to buy that we do and buy that stuff and buy the two bar yeah not that i know of there is a general perception that organized retail may be more expensive than uh, unorganized retail uh, which actually is not true because what you find out is that organized retail actually has a higher ability or stronger ability to negotiate our prices with suppliers um so no i mean for our customer base um no so what's the revenue like that you're doing at the moment can't i definitely can't get into the specifics of those for competitive reasons for obviously com- but what, what, who are your competitors in nigeria i think anybody and everybody who has to give groceries to a customer so so that leads to my other question about uh, how much you've raised as well that we had just before we started recording this so you've raised money yes and um uh, can you give an indication how much you've raised? It's again one of those things that I wouldn't. Well, you can talk put in millions. In. Yeah, so we've raised quite a, a tidy sum of money. Definitely not um, uh, as big as your big, big um, e-commerce player. But for a company of our size, we've raised money from institutional investors and local investors, our individual investors to be more precise. Um, and that's how we're capitalizing. I think building the businesses. So, are you, what stage have you raised? Seed, Series A. How many times have you raised? Again, so you probably notice we don't, I'll struggle to be honest to tell you if it's a seed or series A, etc. A lot of the paradigms about building, so for starters, we don't even call ourselves a startup. We call ourselves a business. You know what I mean? So a lot of the paradigms about, you know, you need to raise a seed round and after that you have to raise a series A, then you have to raise a series B, etc. We're trying to run a business that becomes profitable as soon as possible and then we grow from there. And insofar as we have a business plan that needs funding, we look for the funds to be able to fund the business plan and we deliver on the business plan and we go on to the next one so we're not really all about i've raised my seed round and i'm done now i'm going to raise my series a and i'm done etc i think if we were to go down that path we wouldn't be alive today because it's incredibly difficult raising money in sub-saharan africa and i think the paradigms of seed series a etc they work very well somewhere in silicon valley where there's enough money to go around and it's a bit of a bet that you know we pump enough money in and then hopefully what comes out at the end is good enough to sell and there's some that we actually buy it as yeah. well, which is in our markets you know you have to get a business to be like self-sustaining as soon as possible and that's what we've been focused on okay that, and that's a good way to look at it and to build a business so are you profitable at the moment we had a profitable quarter i think we are i think i feel confident that we're at that point yes well it's what i call weak profitability but 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have a good base to build up on. Okay. So it means that if you're forced, really, really forced to do st- drastic stuff, you can just get to the base and you're profitable. Yeah. yeah. Or you can then raise money to expand. Exactly. We are only in Lagos at the moment. Yes. What's the plan for the future? The plan for the future is manifold. Um, Lagos is a massive market and we haven't, you know, we've barely scratched the surface. So we're not in too much of a hurry to expand from Lagos. Beyond that, we, like I mentioned earlier, we have a partnership with Jimia and Jimia Fresh. We're open to those partnerships. Um, so insofar as somebody can bring some assets to the table that can actually leverage what we also know, the assets that we bring to the table to create something synergistically larger than uh, we would have been able to do ourselves, we're open to those partnerships. What you're building is an hyper-local business. It means it's intensive every time you want to uh, launch a new market. You have to have your logistics guys everywhere, so which can be capital intensive. So what's your idea of scaling to other cities? Yeah, which is what I'm saying, right? So there are various things that need to be brought to the table to make what could be, like you said, a capital-intensive business. You can structure it to be capital-intensive. You can also structure it not to be capital-intensive, by the way. You can decide to partner with people who bring different assets to the table. So, like, we decided to partner with supermarkets. Somebody can decide to do exactly what we're doing, but decide to own their own warehouses. That makes it even more capital-intensive, right? So, again, we're open to the right partnerships to enable us to be able to do what our core goal is to be able to get groceries to the homes of customers. Um, uh, when we find the right partner, we engage and then we run from there. Uh, last question is your view about how technology is changing both the quality of life and the market in Africa. You've been involved in this for seven or eight years. What is your view about how this is going? You've seen several changes of several people coming to the place and some people left and you're still in it. Uh, what do you see happening in terms of technology changing the market, changing people lifestyle changing adoption changing consumer spending and behavior no so i mean technology is being adopted very rapidly in most things that we do right so it's pretty normal today for people to have a video call and have a meeting that way instead of actually you know hitting the road and being stuck in traffic phone calls whatsapp calls very normal now whatsapp you know facebook messenger so there are a lot of things that people are using technology for insofar as what you're building is creating value for customers they will actually pay you the right attention it won't be overnight they have ways of doing things today or they had ways of doing things before. And so you would need to convince them that the new approach that you're bringing is actually better. But insofar as there's value add and they can see it, they will use it. So somebody probably used to go to the open market to buy their groceries. And then we came and said you can buy groceries online. Some of those people went online and started buying groceries online. But some of them are still going to the open market. And it'll take us a bit of time to get there. Some people heard about WhatsApp for free texting, free calling, and free video and haven't used it and still are texting and are calling people, right? There's so many people who won't put data on their phones just to be able to take advantage of WhatsApp, for example. So new technology adoption has its own life cycle and you can't really overly accelerate that. But value creation is really what needs to be done for people to adopt your product. If you're creating value and you have a realistic sense of how long it's going to take because what i've seen is oftentimes when people come into the market and burn out it's because they came in with a paradigm that probably isn't well suited for this market and also with a timeline that was way too aggressive for this market right and so they throw money at the problem and it doesn't stick and then you know they fold and and walk away but if you're realistic about your expectations um, i think the market is growing very rapidly and we'll see some gains at the end of it all good so i want to end this podcast with a series of fire and question just some questions and then you tell me give me answer to them quickly as uh, if you can so what is your biggest business pain point at the moment human resources what do you mean by that? hiring people or managing them 
attitude to work. Can you talk more? So finding finding people who are qualified, you can. Um, on paper, you know, is it I can, is it whatnot? People are qualified. Getting people who will understand that they've signed up to a responsibility and delivering it without you having to be chasing them, you know, that is incredibly difficult to find. And so you find people who know what's supposed to be done but want to do it. Um, I think that is probably the most difficult part. What is your number one growth metric? Satisfied customers, repeat customers. Is that what you measure? So the repeat customers. What What is that like now? What is your repeat rate? Our repeat rate is very high. I mean, 70, 75% of our customers will shop again within a month. Within a month? Yeah. And how many times does your average customer or the top ones shop? Once to twice a month. So the lifetime value of your customer in a year is hundreds of thousands. Yes. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you charge percentage from the customers, from the partner, if I want to calculate that. No, I don't talk numbers in public. So <laughs> let's say you're charging 25%. Uh, your average lifetime value of your customer in a year is 25,000 naira, which is like $80. And I don't know how much you used to acquire them. Let's even say you acquire a customer with $50. That's a good one. You're making $30 in a year. I don't talk just, in public. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, and it might be faster than that. Your, your, your payback time might be six months or four months. And you might be making more money than I'm talking about here. Okay. I don't talk about numbers in public. Right. <laughs> Which book are you reading at the moment? I just finished reading The Fire and Fury. Um, from the tra- <laughs> about the Trump wa- 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 White House. I like to know about what's going on around me. So I, I read that. I'm reading, I just finished reading The Subtle Art of Not Giving uh by Mark Manson. Yeah, I know about I did read it last weekend, but I intend to look at it again, maybe tomorrow evening, because there were some parts that I thought I didn't get grabbed properly. So I'll look at it again tomorrow evening. I have a very long list of books that I need to read and I'll pick up something. I try to read a book every weekend. So. Finish a book every weekend. Yeah. Which business is getting you excited at the moment, apart from your business? Supermat. No, which one apart from your business? Supermat. No, that's not that's, Supermat is still no, your I business. Think, I think building a business is kind of like getting married. Um, so by the time you start looking at other businesses, no, you are... No, be other ones that you just look and say, this is exciting. It doesn't mean that you want to run those businesses. You say, I don't think the analogy of marriage is good for business. It means that you have to be faithful to your own business and every other business. You don't have to look at them. Which one is okay? That business is good, or you like the founders, or you like what they're doing, or you like the thesis they're proving. It might actually be strategically important for you as well because you needed that business to exist for you to do what you are doing efficiently. No, not really. Uh, yeah. I'll still stick to my no, marriage analogy. The truth of the matter is. What I've learned over time is it always looks rosier on the outside. So the fact that somebody is running the business that's doing all the right PR doesn't move me any that's longer. Um, uh, because I'll give you an example. Um, you know, fintech and uh, is the rave today, right? But if you talk to any fintech entrepreneur, they'll tell you the volumes they have to make to even begin to look like they're making money. You know what I mean? Like, so everybody thinks like, you know, build a payments gateway and you're just like, you know, laughing your way to the bank. But the reality is very, very different. I can't get excited about a business okay, like that. That's Not because it doesn't look good on the outside, but because I know just about every business. Once you scratch the surface, okay. there's a lot of undesirable things okay, there. Which ones apart from those ones? It's okay. That's an interesting. Okay. Let's use the word interesting. I know I'm going to sound boring. I, I'm in retail. Um, I'm in enabling retail. I'm in powering, powering retail, helping our retailers be able to sell online and be able to deliver to people. I see lots of opportunities in what I am doing in my space, right? So opportunities that Supermat will execute on. So those excite me. But outside, 
when I'm doing with Supermart, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't pay much attention because I know you walk into a restaurant, see a lot of clients going there and you know, dinner time, everybody's having a meal and you have to call in advance to reserve your seats. All of these, you know, talk to the person running the business and then you find out things that is not obvious to you. I've been in business long enough that I don't envy somebody because I know beneath the surface, he has a lot of problems that he has to deal with, right? So I just focus on what I'm doing and keep trying to do it better and ask myself, what else can I do with what I'm doing rather than and of course that what else is not to change the business fundamentally it's more just like incrementally where can we go with this business good uh, Rafael it's great having you on this podcast we've tried to book this for a long time and we managed to do it even though it's a bit noisy here but I believe a lot of people will enjoy this talk that you just given today okay thank you for having me this series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is W-E-D-O-G-R-O-W-T-H dot C-O. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audience through this podcast, we would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H E L L O at T H E S T A R T A dot com. And we can take this further. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. 
Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.